Let's hear God's word together. We're in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 26 and then 32 to 42. Here it is. This is the story, Gospel of Mark. Then they sang a hymn and went out to the Mount of Olives. They went to the olive grove called Gethsemane. And Jesus said, sit here and, uh, while I go and pray. He took Peter, James, and John with him and became suddenly troubled, deeply troubled and distressed. And he told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He went on a little further and fell to the ground. He prayed that if it were possible, the awful hour awaiting him might pass him by. Abba Father, he cried out, everything is possible for you. Please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will to be done and not mine. Then he returned and found the disciples asleep. He said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Couldn't you watch with me even one hour? Keep watch and pray so that you will not give in to temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Then Jesus left them again and prayed the same prayer as before. When he returned to them again, he found them sleeping, for they couldn't keep their eyes open, and they didn't know what to say. He returned to them the third time, and he said, go on and sleep, have your rest, but know the time has come, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners, up, let's be going, look, my betrayer is here. God's word for us, we are God's people, and we are about to dive deep into God's Word today. We're having Bible study this morning. Let me set some of the stage for you. It was at 11 p.m. when Jesus and His disciples finished uh, their Passover Seder meal. You remember they were in the upper room. I talked about that last week. About 11 p.m. when they finished uh, the, 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 the Seder meal. And before leaving the upper room to go to the Mount of Olives, Jesus and His disciples saying a hymn together. Now, have you ever wondered what it is that they sang? You know, what if I were to tell what if I were to tell you I know what they sang? You may say, Pastor, how in the world do you know that? Well, I know it because it's still part of the Seder meal today. It's from Psalm 18, uh, 118. Here are some of the lyrics. Listen to this. In my distress I prayed to the Lord and the Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is for me, so I will have no fear. What can mere people do to me? I will not die. Instead, I will live to tell what the Lord has done. My enemies did their best to kill me, but the Lord rescued me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has given me victory. You know, 
When I read those words again this week, it, it made me begin to wonder whether the words of this song echoed in Jesus' mind as they left the upper room and he went to the Garden of Gethsemane and prayed there, knowing what was about to happen to him, knowing what was uh, laying ahead of him. You know, in the upper room, Jesus and his disciples walked east and then west. Let's look at the map together. They were leaving the upper room here. This is the old city of Jerusalem. You can see the outline there. They would have left the, the upper room, went out of the gate, down around the lower city walls, and up through the Kidron Valley. And on their right were tombs. You can see them in, in, in thousands of graves. In fact, it's been estimated that there are 150,000 graves here between the, uh, the wall of the old city of Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives, which is right here. They would have walked from the south and up this path right here up to the north toward the Mount of Olives. Uh, at that point. In fact, what you see right here are a number of uh, ancient tombs. These are the monumental tombs uh, right here at this spot. This, this particular tomb right here is uh, a family of priests that are actually mentioned in the Old Testament book of First Chronicles. Uh, they are buried here. This uh, particular monument right here is called Zachariah's tomb. Now, before we think that that is exactly the Zechariah who wrote the, 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 the book of Zechariah in the Old Testament, let me just say that there are about 30 different Zacharias that are mentioned in the scripture. But we, we do know that these uh, tombs and monuments right here would have been present uh, at the at the time of uh, at the time of Jesus, so uh, they were there by the tombs, and uh, the Kidron Valley here is actually called the Valley of Jehoshaphat, the Valley of Jehoshaphat, and the reason that is uh, is because this is the place where the last judgment is to take place. The last judgment taking place here, according to the Old Testament, according to the book of Joel, the prophet Joel, in chapter 3, verse 12, look what it says here. It says, let the nations be roused, let them advance into the valley of Jehoshaphat, that is this area all through here, for there I will sit to judge all the nations on every side. Isn't that interesting? The valley of the Kidron Valley, the Valley of Jehoshaphat, is said by Joel to be the place of the last judgment. And that is one of the reasons why the, all of the tombs face east. All of the tombs, why so many people want to be buried in this particular area uh, in, the, in the Kidron Valley because they are facing east and the idea is that their feet are facing east. So when finally the Messiah comes and God brings down the curtain on history and they rise, they will be facing Jerusalem. Facing Jerusalem. They are facing the eastern gate. Let's take a look here at the eastern gate. Next picture, if you would. 
There we go. We have here the eastern gate. This is the, the gate that's called beautiful in the scripture. You can see there that it is, uh, that it is uh, um, actually uh, sealed up. I'm going to get that, uh, get to that in just one moment. But this valley represents right through here, this Kidron Valley, represents the places where all the nations on earth will one day be judged by the very one who led his disciples through this valley on that tragic night. Now, you'll remember that one of the, uh, that, that Jesus said when they were in the upper room together, said to the disciples that one of them were going to betray him. But isn't it interesting, at least in my mind, that, that when Jesus led them through the Kidron Valley up toward the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane, it was maybe even a very subtle way of saying that every last one of you disciples will betray me and deny me and desert me. By walking past all of those graves, by walking through the valley of Jehoshaphat, the Kidron Valley, where the last judgment is to take place, could that possibly have been Jesus' subtle way of saying, you know what, guys, you know, Judas may have started this process and done the deed, but every last one of you will betray me and desert me and deny me. You know, Jesus sold him out for 30 coins and would soon betray him with a kiss. Peter denied ever having known, even though he put up a great fight, to the contrary, saying he would never do that. And then he knew all his friends were going to desert him, running away to protect their own lives. And so, as they walked up to the Garden of Gethsemane, they are now looking east toward this gate, this uh, one that's called the Beautiful Gate. Let's go uh, to another picture. There's a close-up of the picture right there. This gate is right here uh, described in the Old Testament in Ezekiel chapter 43 as the very one where, the, uh, where a prince would come in and claim his rightful position uh, there in the temple. It's understood uh, as the Messiah is the one who will be coming through that gate in order to establish his kingdom and to, to, uh, to rebuild the temple there in Jerusalem. But you will notice something interesting about this gate. What is it? That the gate is sealed, right? It is sealed up, yes. Uh, in fact, it was sealed by a Turkish sultan. Uh, during the Ottoman Empire, when the Ottoman Empire uh, had taken over and uh, uh, was now uh, uh, in charge of the government there in uh, Jerusalem. And so the Turkish sultan named Suleiman I, in the year 1541, ordered that the gate be permanently sealed in order for that would the Messiah could not come in through this gate. In fact, he did one other thing. Right at the very bottom here, as a matter of fact, you can see him just very, uh, just, just get a glimpse down here, are tombs. 
The reason, or graves. The reason why he put graves right at the entrance is because he knew that any good Jew would not pass through a cemetery because they would become unclean. So he was doing everything he could to make sure that no, the Messiah would not be able to come through uh, and take their place in the temple. Let's go on to the Garden of Gethsemane. Today, the Garden of Gethsemane right here includes some many old olive trees. Uh, this one right here in the center is said to be approximately 3,000 years old, would have been there during the time uh, of Jesus, dates back 3,000 years. There in the Garden of Gethsemane today, uh, you will find the Church of All Nations. Go ahead and put that up. Uh, there we go. Here's the Church of All Nations. They're in the Garden of Gethsemane. Here are the olive trees right here. There are also some on this side. But the Church of All Nations was built at the place where Jesus, is, it's also called the Basilica of the Agony, because this is the place where Jesus went to pray, where he was arrested uh, and betrayed by uh, betrayed by Judas, arrested by the, the, uh, the soldiers, and carted off to his first trial over at the high priest's house, the Church of All Nations. What's fascinating to me about this church, and it's absolutely gorgeous on the inside, but when you go to inside, the ceiling, maybe you can see this here, is painted to resemble the night sky. Painted to resemble the night sky to, to, so that all the worshipers who go in there will be reminded that this is where Jesus was on the night of his agony, on the night where he was betrayed, on the, on the, the night where he was arrested. And you can see the painted the stars all here in the, the sky. Also, inside the uh, Church of All Nations is this stone right here, this outcropping of rock. This is said right here in front of the altar, is said to be the place where Jesus went to pray, where he had taken Peter, James, and John with them and said, look, I want you to watch and pray, stay alert, watch and pray. While he goes on to pray, he went further into the garden, and it says that he dropped face down with the burden of this, this heavy weight of, of what was about to take place to him, knowing what was going to happen, he dropped to the ground and he prayed. And this is said to be the spot where this happened. This is considered one of the very holy spots there in the Holy Land. Now, Judas knew exactly where to find Jesus. And you say, well, how did he do that? Well, in the Gospel of John, John tells us that because Jesus had often gone there with his disciples, you know, he knew that this was a place where Jesus may go, because Jesus often went there, according to John. And according to Luke, it says this, that Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives to pray that night. But I guess the question that I have for you is this. Why did he go to the Mount of Olives that night? Why did he go there to the Garden of Gethsemane 
on the Mount of Olives. Do you think it was because it was a peaceful, quiet place where he could simply be alone to pray? Is that a possibility? Is it also a possibility that, that from the Mount of Olives you could see the, 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 the temple shining in the moonlight, gleaming with all that gold? Could it be that, that he went there because that's where King David went? You know, it says so in the Old Testament that, that King David went to the Mount of Olives to pray when his own son betrayed him. And he was there and he cried out to the Lord. Could it possibly be that it's because Zechariah had promised concerning the Messiah saying that on that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. You know, we may not know the exact reason, but it was likely because of all of these things. Because it was a peaceful, quiet place. Because it was, uh, because he could see the temple shining in the moonlight, which, which provided him hope because he knew that that's exactly the place where his heavenly father, his heavenly father dwelled. Maybe it was because that was the place that King David went to pry, uh, cry and to pray, knowing what was facing him. Maybe it was because Zechariah had already prophesied that the Son of Man, that the Messiah would stand there on the Mount of Olives. But once he was in the garden, for whatever reason, when he was in the garden, he told his disciples to watch and to pray. He left the others with them, and then he took his three best friends, Peter, James, and John, on deeper into the garden. And I believe that he did that because I believe that he simply wanted to share with them, to confide in them how how deeply grieved he was, how, how afraid that he was, how much in agony that he was knowing what was about to take place. In fact, he said to them, he said, look, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He was in so much agony. He was in so much uh, overwhelmed with sorrow knowing the torture that would be inflicted upon him in the next couple of hours that he just needed to share it with his three best friends. Let me ask you a question, folks. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt like you were so overwhelmed you just wanted to share your agony, your grief, your sorrow with someone that you believed would understand. You know, I think that, that every one of us need people in our lives like that. We all need our Peter, James, and Johns. The people that we can share our hurt and our fear and our sorrow and our pain with. Folks, we don't often even need our best friends to, to say anything. 
We just need them to be there for us. We don't need them to even share a word of encouragement. We just need to know that they're there. That we're not alone. That there's somebody who is standing by our sides. And Matthew said that when, after he told Peter, James, and John what was going on, he went to that place where there was that stone there in the church of all nations, and he says he threw himself face down on the ground. And what did he do? He prayed. And a little while later, Jesus gets up to go check on his three best friends. And lo and behold, if he didn't find them asleep, and he said, look, Simon, Peter, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for just one hour? And it was then that Jesus said something that made it clear that he was going to face the suffering and torment all alone. And he said to them, look, the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Let me ask you something, friends. Can you identify with this? Can you identify with these words? You know, I'm ashamed to say that I can too. I mean, how many times have you been asleep when you know that Jesus needed you? And I'm not just talking about physical sleep. I'm talking about spiritual sleep. When have, you been, when have you been asleep at the wheel when Jesus was calling you to do something? To be awake and in prayer. You know, I, I, I've heard of some Christians uh, who say that this agony of, or excuse me, this idea of Jesus pleading with God in agony is very disturbing. But you know, I think it invokes tremendous compassion. For some, they say this idea of, of Jesus pleading that God would take this cup of suffering away from him and all of this anxiety about the crucifixion simply was uh, an act of, of uh, a lack of faith, a lack of courage. I disagree. You know, let me ask you, have you ever been accused of something that you did not do? Have you ever been ostracized or, or spoken about or had rumors whispered about you when none of that was true and that you did nothing to deserve it? I mean, do you ever, do you, if, if this ever happened to you, do you remember how you felt? In your agony, did you plead with God to stop the suffering? Folks, listen carefully to me. That night in the Garden of Gethsemane, our Lord was in agony. In the next few hours, he would be accused of crimes that he did not commit. 
He was hated. He was ostracized. And he was about to be nailed to a Roman cross. Though he did absolutely nothing to deserve it. Just think about that. You know, he didn't deserve it. But, but the disturbing fact is that, that we did. You see, it was for our sin that Jesus went to the cross. He could have walked away. He could have called 10,000 angels to come and destroy the world and set him free. But you know what? He didn't do it. The punishment that was upon him was the punishment that we deserved. That's the reason that he endured the cross. He suffered on the cross in order to reconcile you and me with his heavenly Father to give us a home in glory to wipe our sin away to set us free that's what he did it was the greatest act of sacrificial love that's ever been on display among human beings because he took our sin and endured the cross let me say something here you know God didn't abandon his son but he looked with love and compassion at the suffering of his son I believe with every fiber of my being that, that God was grieved by this moment. Seeing the suffering and death of, of, of Jesus was the only way to draw the world, draw you and me, draw the world to himself. And folks, I, I think that every one of us knows the what it's like to sense that God wants us to do something that we don't really truly want to do. You know, there may have been a time, or maybe even right now, a time in your life where, where God is calling you to take on a new ministry. There may be a time right now that, that God is calling you to leave behind an unhealthy relationship. There may be those of you that God is calling right now to make a sacrificial financial gift in order to endow the future ministry of the church. It may be that God is calling some of you either to a short-term or even a longer-term position as a missionary somewhere in the world. That you are being called to serve others outside of your comfort zone. You know, unless you, unless you think that this is some strange thing that God 
it does, that it's never going to happen to you. Let me say this, that there are people right here in our own church family that have received that call and have left their jobs simply in order to do what God has called them to do. Some have, since God's call into full-time Christian service, have left their positions to go into seminary, have trusted God every step of the way. I'm thinking of our own Pastor Tony Arnold, Pamela Kipps, Pastor Abby Forrester, Delicia Davis, Jennifer Deschanel, Maggie Krogan, James Lewis, Lizzie Arnold. Do you realize that there have been eight people from our own congregation who have heard God's call and responded simply to go into full-time Christian ministry as a pastor within the Methodist church? And you know what? Our church is only about 30 years old. And already eight people. I can guarantee you that Christ Church has one of the highest rates of our lay people going into ministry of any church in Virginia. And I share that with you because there are people who are hearing God's call every day. What is God calling you to do? Some have since God's movement have left their comfort zones and have gone on short-term mission trips to, to Russia or to Guatemala or to Kenya. Some have been considering some longer-term missionary services uh, as soon as uh, the pandemic winds down. And doing so even though they're afraid. Some have been nudged to the Lord to swallow their pride and make attempts to heal broken relationships. Some have been moved by God to give of their time and their energy and effort at the food banks of Rising Hope Church or uh, Lord and Community Action Center and to serve God by serving others this way. And even giving of their time and talent and energy for the hypothermia shelter. And I can tell you that most people who serve have some anxiety that go along with it, that they're afraid because they're stepping out of their comfort zone into places that they had never been before. And yet, to get there, they say, just like Jesus, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. Folks from the, the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus in 33 AD, right here to Christ Church in 2021, the Lord is calling. He is speaking now. And maybe He is calling you out of your comfort zone. And so I leave you with this question. What is your response? God is calling. 
What is your response? Thank God the Lord answered when God called him. And you and I are the benefit beneficiaries of the forgiveness, the love, and the grace that has been raining down upon us from Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, today we, the people of Christ Church, come together to examine this time that you spent in the garden. You know, you, you called your three best friends to watch and pray during this time that you were in true agony, during this time that you were, you were, you were afraid, during this time you knew that, that you were in grief because of what laid ahead of you, and yet you, you brought your three best friends into, into the conversation to, and asked them, Lord, and asked them to do just one thing, to watch and pray, to be alert, to watch and pray. But even his three best friends deserted him. Lord, we are grateful that, that Jesus followed through. Because we are the beneficiaries of a home in glory. And the gift of salvation and forgiveness. We pray, Heavenly Father, that as you call us, that we may have the courage to answer your call. The question is, what are you calling us to do? Lord, we pray that you would make that clear to us. You have been calling throughout history. And even right here at Christ Church, you are calling us today. May we have ears to listen and the courage to respond. We thank you, Lord. We praise you. We honor you. We worship you and adore you. Come, Lord Jesus. Fill us with your love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.